This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's abuse. It's predatory behavior. It's case after case of knowing exactly who to target so that victim would be the most vulnerable and, and unlikely to either be believed or to even report what happened in the first place. Why don't you have a seat? Now that's the classic catchphrase, or my impression thereof, of today's guest, a longtime hero of mine, is Chris Hansen. For those of you who don't know, Chris is a huge star whose show, To Catch a Predator, was massive. It was a massive hit. And I used to sit and watch it with my brother as a teenager. I mean, it's actually quite morose, really, but the concept is that Chris works with police to catch, you guessed it, sexual predators. Now, what they did is they set up a decoy in a chat room who was supposed to be a 12 or 13 year old boy or girl. And then that imaginary child, which is actually police, would talk with predators on chat rooms and stuff for some time, establishing sufficient evidence so that the predator, once caught, had made their intentions clear in writing and couldn't then pretend that they didn't know the child's age. So they got all the proof, all the evidence. These men would then turn up at the house and talk with an 18-year-old actor who looked like a young boy or girl, and then that actor or decoy would step out, and in comes Chris. Why don't you have a seat, Chris would say. And like magic, these guys would just sit down and start to reveal everything to him, often maybe unaware they're being filmed or unaware the police are outside, while presenter Chris gets more and more valuable information out of them, you know, in, in order to get them charged and sentenced. Um, then the police team moves in, arrests the man, you know, and Chris's ability to get people to sit down and talk to him is so, it's really something, and it's been caricatured by, by South Park. There's an episode where Cartman has Tourette's, I think, and he goes and talks to Chris Hansen. And I asked him about that as well, but he didn't even know that South Park was going to happen. Um, it makes for incredibly gripping TV, uh, to catch a predator, that, that is, as well as South Park, of course, uh, because it's so damn sensational. And there are moral quandaries too. I mean, at least one of the men caught on the show committed suicide. And things get a little murky once you look into why we watched the show, why I sat there so engrossed uh, and continue to be. Uh, it, the schadenfreude, right? It's, uh, if, you, if you pause it when Chris walks out into the room, you can see the exact moment that the, the predator goes from a high-status position, such as a police officer or a firefighter or a teacher or something, to suddenly, like in the blink of an eye, a lowly paedophile scum, their lives forever altered or forever changed, just in that, that split second. So that's, it's, it's almost like they've been killed off. The, the, the identity they had created is gone. And it's the closest thing we have today to public execution. That's what made that show so big, I think. That's what made it so compelling. And that's not to say these people don't deserve their fate in many respects. They believed that they were coming to the house to rape a child after all. It's just that the reason it is such compelling TV says something about us as humans, and me in particular, because I enjoyed it so much. Um, Chris, 
has a thriving YouTube channel of his own name, uh, a podcast as well called Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen, and has recently made a documentary for Discovery Plus about an abusive YouTuber called Onision, and we'll talk about that at the end. I'll write about this in my newsletter, so do sign up on weeklyedge.substack.com. But for now, you're on the edge with Chris Hansen. Thank you for joining me, Chris. How are you, how are you doing today? I'm great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Do you remember we were on Sean's show about a month ago, and I we we sure were. I had the added uh, the added bonus of having you on too, and it was, it was great. Sean, uh, Sean, I met you know crossing paths in different different circles of uh, of. Uh, you know, crime reporting. And I always enjoy going on a show. And it was great that you were on there that day as well. And thank you for having me here. No, oh, you're very welcome. I'm, and I was sort of uh, fanboying all over you because I, I, it's a funny thing. I grew up watching uh, To Catch a Predator, just like with my brother. Isn't that a weird thing? Like in England, I guess you didn't imagine that at the time when you're making it. Well, we didn't. I mean, honestly, I mean, it, it, it's it's flattering and, and, and it's not uncommon because it did have a it does have a, a you know a very strong audience within that age group and especially in in uh, the UK, but um, you know I thought we'd do it once or twice and that'd be it and nobody would show up. I never imagined it would become what it is today. I mean, we shot an investigation just two weeks ago, Andrew, uh, for the new Predator series coming up, and we caught a cop who was also a former school administrator. No, and we caught a vice president of operations for a major company. And there was a guy who even showed up in a huge dump truck, literally two, two, two weeks ago, almost three weeks ago now. Yeah. And, you know, it's been 18 years since we did the very first predator investigation. And yet we still have guys showing up. And imagine this. I mean, when we started doing it, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo, if you remember then. And today, with the explosion of social media platforms, where predators can approach children. I mean, there's more opportunity, there's more activity than ever before. We had a case, again, just a few weeks ago, and we're doing a story on this as well, where a 12-year-old girl was contacted on Instagram. A girl who lived in Michigan, contacted on Instagram by a guy who lives in Florida. He traveled up, met her, took her to a hotel for sex. She was injured in that process, went to the hospital, reported it. They tracked it all the way back, arrested the guy, in uh, Florida, extradited him. And it turns out he's given up the fact that he did this at least two other times, meeting underage girls on Instagram. You think your kid's safe on Instagram? You think your kid's safe on TikTok? You think your kid's safe on all these social media platforms? But, it, you know, I don't mean to be the, the, the worry monger here for parents, but you do have to be aware and we see it on the front lines when we do these investigations. Does it keep you up at night thinking about, I guess, all the, all the people you can't stop. It does a little bit. And, and I take this responsibility very seriously. You know, look, obviously there's a television component to it. And, and it's, it's part of my repertoire of journalistic work over the years. And, and actually, while it's what I'm perhaps most known for, I mean, it's only 10% of the portfolio. You know, out of 10 Emmys I've won, none of them are for predators. They're all for other, you know, exploits and reporting. But it does. And I take the responsibility very seriously. And I think... It's especially important when I, you know, go on shows like this or when I give speeches or, you know, talk to groups of law enforcement and parents that you, you remind folks that because this is a crime, 
where demand reduction is very difficult, right? If you're talking about drugs, we treat it as an addiction more than a crime and we can, we can reduce the demand. It's very difficult in this area to reduce the demand. The demand doesn't seem to be going anywhere. We don't have an effective treatment protocol. We have punishment, we have some treatment, but very few people are out there with expertise in this field. They're out there and they do great work, but it's not a very glamorous part of medicine. So when you put all that into the mix, the best way to protect your children is the front line at home, which is an honest conversation with your child saying, look, these are the realistic dangers. I don't want to freak you out, but it's not bad to shoot a missile off their bow every once in a while and tell a scary story or have them, you know, when it's age appropriate, watch one of the shows and say, look, this is, this is what happens. I remember early on in the predator investigations, I interviewed about a dozen middle school kids and I showed them the video and the most shocking thing about showing them the video was they thought it was an actor. They didn't think that this could happen in real life. I said, no, this is a real guy. Then I said, okay, show of hands. How many of you have been online and have been approached by somebody you thought was an adult and it made you feel uncomfortable? Almost everybody raised their hands, right? Middle schoolers. Then I said, how many of you then went and told your parents about this? Nobody. They're kicking their shoes against each other. They're looking down. Nobody. Nobody told their parents. And that to me, as a journalist, as a parent, as an investigative reporter, taught me a lesson, which is you got to have this discussion. And it starts at a very early age with an inappropriate talk about, look, there are adults out there who want to trick kids and you don't want to be one of those kids who gets tricked. And you ramp it up, you know, after that. Did you, did you show your own shows to your kids? Yeah, my guys were pretty much in high school when, when I was doing these. So, uh, yeah, but they sat on the couch next to me and watched it. And obviously, once you're, you know, in, 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 at a certain age, when you're a teen, you see it differently maybe than when you're, you know, preteen, which is really where you got to start talking to kids. Um, and it's funny because, you know, they went to a high school. Both of them now are ones behind the scenes as a, as a photographer, production guy, and ones in front of the camera as a reporter. Um, but, you know, the, for them to have a dad on TV was no big deal because they went to a high school where dads did a lot of stuff. They worked on Wall Street. They built ships. They did all kinds of things. But when South Park did the Chris Hansen Predator episode, suddenly I was the coolest dad. Did you watch it with them? We've seen it numerous times. I mean, I, when it first aired, I was uh, in San Francisco on assignment on a story unrelated to Predator. And I got a text from one of my agents at William Morris Endeavor. And he said, uh, South Park is doing it tonight. They don't tell you in advance. You know, they don't use your voice. They, they just do what they're going to do. And he said, it's, uh, I said, how's it going? He said, because I was on a different time zone. I was going to have to watch it in three hours. He said, that's oh, pretty funny so far. And about 20 minutes later, I got a text. It's taken a dark turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course it did at South Park. Yeah, South Park, right? I remember watching that again. Yeah, me and my brother would sit. We watched To Catch a Predator all the time because it was just on. And then, because um, it was episode after episode on British TV, it was just on. And then, obviously, that South Park, because that was the other thing that we were just all watching was South Park. So to see that those two worlds come together was quite exciting for us. It's funny that they sort of did your, they, they, I'm Chris Hans, and they did that. And you don't, <laughs> you don't seem to say that. Well, I think they, they, they comedically, you know, uh, accentuate caricatured you yeah to make it more dramatic i i, I got a kick out of it look it's it's 
it's uh, something that's become iconic in pop culture. And, 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 and you look, you know, I have no problem with people making fun of me or taking shots at me as long as it brings attention to this very serious topic, which it does. And, and there's undoubtedly, Andrew, uh, a comedic part of this. I mean, as serious as it is, uh, as important as it is, there are undeniably humorous moments. You know, and when we do the Predators I've Caught podcast, because of the it being a podcast and audio, I can go back now to some of these cases and I can mine these moments. Um, I don't really, I mean, I make notes when I do that podcast, but I don't actually write out a script because I immerse myself in the material, you know, in, in the video, in the behind the scenes stuff, in the transcripts. And then I just tell the story, which seems to resonate with listeners of the podcast, but I have to relive all this stuff. And in the process, you know, there are, you know, clearly some humorous moments and I talk about those in the podcast. Yeah. And, and as far as South Park goes, I mean, they didn't, they didn't really lay into you, did they? I mean, they could, I mean, like Mel Gibson, Mel Gibson got it really bad, for example, people like that. Well, I like to think there wasn't that much to lay into, but <laughs> I mean, they, look, they, they had fun with it and, 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 and that's fine. You know, again, it brings focus and attention to a very serious topic. No, and you're right though. You have to find humor and it's even dark humor. Well, you have to, it's, it's a dark world, isn't it? You know, yeah. you do crime stuff and, and uh, you know, and Sean does it obviously. And, and it's, it's, um, you have to find humor. Otherwise you make yourself crazy. You know? Well, I'm thinking of the, the guy who just kept eating pizza. So uh, I should say as uh, just in case, like anyone doesn't doesn't know, you know, it's a, it's a show. There's no show like it to catch a predator. I, I don't think there is anyway. Has there ever been anything else like it? And, and as you answer that, could you sort of give a very brief rundown of, of what it is? Well, it's you know, basically, 18 years ago, uh, I pitched a story at Dateline, and I did a lot of their crime and investigative stories for Dateline, which is the news magazine of NBC here in America. And I became aware of a group a watchdog group called Perverted Justice. And Perverted Justice would go into chat rooms posing as 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. And if they were approached by an adult, and if the adult raised the subject of sex or an inappropriate meeting, they would take that adult, that man, in virtually all cases, his identity and post it on their website and sort of poke fun and bring attention to this guy was trying to have sex with a child. And then they started to talk about working with law enforcement. And then I became aware of them. And I, I thought, well, if we could use their decoys, perverted justice's decoys, and our ability to wire a house with you know, hidden cameras and microphones, it could be very compelling. So I pitched the story, not as a standalone show, just as a segment on Dateline, as I mentioned earlier. And they bought into it and a bunch of smart people weighed in on it. And we did it um, 18 years ago this past February in Bethpage, Long Island. And I wondered at the time if I had just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money. You know, what if nobody shows up? And with that, you know, I'm stuck in traffic getting over to the first day of the, the operation, the sting. And my producer calls and said, you know, where the hell are you? We've got two guys scheduled to show up in, in uh, 45 minutes. And before it was over, the two and a half day sting, we had 17 guys surface in that investigation, including a New York City firefighter. And I, you know, and, and I'm figuring this out as I go along. I mean, I've done a lot of reporting over the years in local news and at network news before that. I mean, I had been at the network, you know, 
uh, 10 years at that point. So it wasn't, I'd been around the world confronting people. Uh, we had done stories on child sex trafficking and, and, and sex tourism overseas. And, and so, you know, there wasn't a lot that shocked me. There wasn't a lot of things that I haven't done that weren't just as dangerous, but this was eye-opening. And, you know, you're closed in, you know, and who is this guy? And that was before we collaborated with law enforcement. You know, we've had to evolve over the last 18 years uh, as to how we do this, you know, socially, we need to be responsible. Uh, for the sake of justice, we need to be responsible to make sure these guys face, you know, some sort of legal ramification. And for our own safety and the integrity of the ensuing law enforcement investigation, we've had to shift. So now, you know, we collaborate a little more closely than law enforcement. Uh, than we did in the very first investigation and, and have increased that over the last 18 years because that is the right thing to do. So a couple of weeks ago, when this guy walks in, um, I have the chance to interview him first. And if he runs or he becomes violent, then the police move in. I still get to do the interview. And it was interesting because this fellow who I was talking about earlier, Andrew, who is the police officer who we caught was there for a teenage boy he was instantly indignant with me and he was really, really, you know, belligerent. Did you know who you were? I, he was figuring it out. Right. And, and, but I didn't know he was a cop at that point. Right. We knew we had a name, we had a little bit of background information, but I could tell he was either a cop, a teacher, a clergyman or some, local politician because of his, I will not be put on camera. You're making demands of me. And I'm thinking, you know, you're not really in a strong position right now. And, you know, he's turning away from my cameras, um, but he's getting caught on all the hidden cameras throughout the house. Right. And so he leaves and I go to the crew and to the people upstairs, the production people and law enforcement. I say, I guarantee you that this is, as I said, a cop or a politician or a clergyman, somebody in a position of authority. And sure enough, they go search his car. What do they find? Three guns and a pair of handcuffs. He's a cop. Oh, and he had been in multiple school districts for years. We've got people coming out of the woodwork now to talk about this guy. In fact, I'm just making a note to myself that I've got to call one of those people when I finish with you, Andrew. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. It's, do you ever wonder, do you think that children are that responsive to these, you know, I, I'm wary of using the P-R-E-D-A-T-O-R word because you told me before we started recording that YouTube picks up on it if you say it too many times. So I think you can use it as many times as you want and hopefully we won't get to 10 or 20. So, But those people, um, when they find your decoys, do you think they're thinking, oh my God, this is the one in a million thing because none of the other kids are responding to me? Or do you get the impression that they're actually meeting up with these kids, quite, quite real kids often? Well, I, I think it's happened. I think it's a crime of opportunity, right? So if uh, an adult seeking a sexual liaison with a child finds somebody who's vulnerable, as they did in this last investigation and so many others, as we saw with a 12-year-old girl who was brought into a medical trauma center because of the physical damage she suffered in the sexual assault, I think there are a whole lot of guys out there who will take advantage of it. 
but there has to be that opportunity. It's like a burglar rattling doors. When the door's unlocked, they come in. So if you lock your doors by educating your children, there's a far less chance of them being exploited. But I mean, clearly, I mean, this happens to good kids in good homes too. I mean, there are countless examples of that, but you know, they're looking for the vulnerable, you know, for the child who's home alone. And that's typically the profile that, that, you know, the decoys use, you know, I'm available, I'm home alone. My parents won't be back. And, but that's a real life scenario too. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. How do you decide uh, the age or the supposed age of the decoys? Because sometimes they're 12, 13 or 14, aren't they? We mix it up just to, you know, sometimes we'll see how depraved predators might be. And so we'll use the profile of a 12-year-old girl. Um, we don't go too much older because we don't want there to be a gray area. You know, you, you sometimes get in a situation where the potential predator is 19 or 20. And if the, the decoy is 16, even 15 in some states, it could be illegal, but you know, is it in a 
Romeo and Juliet gray area situation. And that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for, you know, something that could be, you know, an acceptable dating relationship that is technically against the law. We're not looking to trap people who aren't, you know, adults looking to have sex and violate a child. So we, we try to structure it so that is in fact what we find. Now, you know, we do find cases and we had one within the last year where an 18 year old showed up for a teenage girl. And, you know, I was criticized a little bit for, for doing the story on him. Uh, but he did show up with uh, sexual toys. There was talk of, you know, doing aggressive things with a child. There was talk of him having done it before. Um, he was a babysitter for younger children. And we did the story and I handled the interview in a different way because he was 18. But you could argue, I think, Andrew, that, you know, what's the difference between the harm an 18-year-old kid causes a child and a 38-year-old kid, 38-year-old man? I mean, it's still harm. It's still an adult. I mean, people can make their own judgments about what was really going to happen. But in this case, you know, I felt it, it, it arose to the threshold of reporting on it. It sounds like it wasn't a one-off either if that, that this person was babysitting and sort of, you know, they were, they were grooming. He had exposure to children. Now, the, you know, the, the only positive potential news here is that, you know, the psychiatrist and the therapist that we talked to about this will tell you that the earlier there is an intervention, the better chances that you can fix somebody and prevent them from doing it again. So, you know. Can you fix somebody then? I think some people can be. And again, I'm not a therapist. I don't have expertise in this, but I've talked to a lot of people. And in my experience, these guys break down into three different categories. You've got the hardcore heavy hitters. I mean, these guys, you just got to lock them up forever because they're going to offend. They, without the internet, they'd be at the mall or the bad little league coach or the bad soccer coach or, you know, whatever, hang out at the, the mall, at the food court. Those guys are, you know, true predators, true pedophiles. And then you've got the younger group who are opportunists who say things and try to find somebody online because they're socially inept and they have a difficult time engaging one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. And those are the guys in their early twenties who you'll see approach, you know, a teen girl. It's wrong. It's illegal, but they justified in their mind that if it works out, then at some point she'll be old enough and it won't be a problem. And to me, the most interesting category is this group in the middle adults who have a predisposition towards underage boys or girls, but wouldn't act on it without the internet, the anonymity, the 24 seven access and the addictive nature of it. And these guys get into these chats. They admit that they're wrong. They admit that they could go to jail. We see this all the time in transcript after transcript. You know, you can't tell anybody, you got to race these texts and they show up anyway. They can't help themselves from crossing this line between fantasy and reality and they're knocking on our door. And, and we hear the same excuses over and over again. We heard it just a couple of weeks ago in this most recent investigation. We're going to do a sampling of it on the YouTube channel, I think this week, and then it'll air the, the next television series. But, you know, the guy tells me, he was just there to help the girl. She was in a, a predicament and he was there to talk some sense into her. Well, I, you know, I've got the transcript. I know how this went down. 
And then the inevitable question for me, do you have children? And sometimes the answer is yes. And how would you respond if you weren't home and a guy came over to have sex with your children? They wouldn't like it. And that to me is just the most mind boggling part of this is like, wait a minute, you have this whole life. You're the vice president of a company. We've had doctors, we've had clergymen, we've had people from all walks of life and you're gonna blow it all to what? To rape a child? You know, that child's not old enough to give consent. It just, it astounds me that this takes place and still does. With that in mind, and, and also you were saying before that, um, you know, it's not something that you can really, you know, you can't really solve it apart from making parents more aware and speaking to their children because there are always new pedophiles being made, you know. Um, sh- sh- what do you, where do you stand on, I think, America and the UK have got mandatory reporting if a potential pedophile goes to a therapist, for example, they can't go and talk about it because they'll be reported to the police. So what, what, should, would it not be better if they could actually talk about it and get help? Well, that's a good question. And, um, you know, I, I think it'd be the same with virtually any crime, though. If you went to a therapist and said, you know, I murdered somebody, I think there's mandatory reporting there. And, and so, you know, the rape of a child is, is a felony. Um, if you're talking about, if you're talking about somebody who's got, you know, leanings that way, then, and hasn't committed a crime, well then, you know, I suppose there's a medical responsibility to, you know, try as best you can is to get this person help. But I don't think there's a, there's a responsibility on the part of a medical professional to say, oh, this guy has bad thoughts. He may act. Uh, but if he's committed a crime, that crime should be treated no differently than any other first-class felony. And there is mandatory reporting. I don't, I, I don't have an issue with that. I do think as a society, we have not come to grips adequately with sorting out who can be treated and who cannot be treated, who has to be jailed. And, and we want simple answers. We want lock them all up, give them a drug that works or, you know, treat them at the, at a, at a program that has a hundred percent success rate and that just doesn't exist, you know? And, and so it's, it's, a, it's a mix. We're going to have a, a husband or wife therapist team who I met at a conference on human trafficking in Houston on the podcast very soon. Um, as well as a <clears throat> psychiatrist who's worked with the U S Marshals who I've interviewed before who's you know, brilliant at this. And these people spend, that's what they do. That's their practice. And I know there are thousands of them out there I am not aware of who do the same work, but I think it's important to, to have this discussion and nobody wants to, Hey, you know, you're going to sit down at the dinner table and talk about you know, therapy for sex offenders. I mean, if, if you have a medical license in this country, do you want to work on park Avenue, you know, doing cosmetic surgery or dentistry, or do you want to go into federal prisons and interview sex offenders? It's, it's, it's tough work. I mean, thank God people do it. But it's not. It's interesting what you what you're saying about you know programs of 100 um, uh, percent efficacy. Um, in the UK, there was one that I think was state sponsored um, or run by the state, and it it was awful because for years and years, uh, people sec- it was sex offenders and you know for for, for adults and children, um, people who were offending with adults and children, and they found that people were worse 
when they came out, they had like worse rates of offending, reoffending. And what was happening is that because they were putting them all together in this clinic, they were sort of swapping tips and pushing each other on and telling each other it was normal. So that's one of the challenges, I suppose, that we have. Well, it's like a bad drug rehab facility where you know, yeah, the kids go and they just learn how to talk. All they do is talk about how they're going to score if they get out. And- drugs again exactly i was living in um berlin for a couple of years and they've got a really interesting um system because they don't have mandatory reporting and they're again it's state-backed uh, and it's called don't offend and people uh go there basically they hide their adverts don't offend hide their advertising they make like a fake video file so that the predator thinks that it's going to be that and actually it's a, an advert saying call us if you want help and it's total total anonymity um, so, so the the clinic can't even press charges or anything if they wanted to. That's the point because they don't even have their names or numbers or anything like that. It's you come in and we don't use your name, and that apparently gets more of them to come in. The problem is they can't they, they can't prove that it's working because the stats because of the anonymity. Yeah, yeah. How do you know? How do you know if you know a child's abuse cases go down or? Well, there's no way to track them at that point. I mean, it's a noble experiment, certainly. I mean. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think this is an issue where you, you try everything and hopefully something works, you know? Yeah. But then the thing was, I went and met some of these patients because I was looking into it as a journalistic endeavor. And the first guy I went to meet, uh, he gave me an address. And the address was a swimming pool, a public swimming pool, which is quite popular in Germany, the Schwimmbad. And he's there. And he had a little girl with him. And I said, who's this? And he said, I'm babysitting this little girl. And I said, and his name was Max, but it's not his real name. And he, he was, I was like, Max, that doesn't sound right. And then two other girls were there as well. They came along and they're like, Max, can we have an ice cream? And I'm like, what's going on? And he said, oh, they're from another parent. He was babysitting three kids at a swimming pool. And he thought it was an appropriate place to meet a journalist to discuss it. And it's Matt, you just think, are these people, are, they're nuts, some people, aren't they? That's so disturbing. And, uh, and prevalent, you know. God. That's rough. Do you know how prevalent it is? Do you have stats like that in, in the States, for example? I suppose it's the same everywhere. It's hard to tell. I mean, you know, you, you can take a look and, at um, reporting stats, mandatory reporting um, that is federally mandated here by the government that if Facebook and or Instagram or Twitter, anything, any other social media platform, if they get a report, of either child pornography or an inappropriate contact between an adult and child, they have to report it to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, NECMEC. Um, and what we saw there, I mean, there are obviously millions and millions of reports filed each year, but we saw an incredible spike during the pandemic because obviously there are more predators online and more kids online and you know, parents may all be in the same house as their children, but everybody's trying to get work done and survive this pandemic. And, and the predators knew that. So you saw a huge spike in reports of child porn, uh, the transmission of it on social media, and the attempted inappropriate contact between an adult and a child. It's in, it's in the millions. I mean, but then it's difficult, just to be honest, I mean, it's difficult to then extrapolate from those reports received by, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, TikTok, um, what actually happened if there was a contact, if there was a meeting, if there was a crime committed, 
uh, again, those are just very difficult stats to come by. No, I can imagine. Hey, do you ever get um, on, on Catch a Predator and, and, and the variation, the spin-offs of it, do you ever get women uh, coming in who, who are trying to abuse? Never had one in our investigation. And in the, in the, the psychiatrists tell us that it's, it's because when you look at the cases of female predators, you're more likely to see the teacher-student scenario, that the female predator doesn't like the anonymity. It's happened, and I wrote about it in, in a book I wrote on the whole experience several years ago. Um, but we've never seen it in any of our cases. And typically, you know, again, the, the cases that make headlines, at least, are the ones where the, you know, that's the teacher hitting on the kid, um, female teacher hitting on the kid. And... Uh, you know, the male predator, um, you know, gets off on the anonymity in some cases. That's that's attractive to him. So that's that's who we see. Does one case stand out as the most sort of one that sticks with you or is most horrific or anything like that? Well, it's about a hundred way tie for first. But it, um, I mean, the guys that had offended in the past, um, we had a guy in uh, Riverside County, California, Thomas Bodner, who we dug into his past and found out that he had offended twice before. And we actually interviewed, um, you know, one of the kids in the, uh, and he was, a, he was a uh, big brother and he was mentoring these kids on the surface, but it turned out that he was um, sexually assaulting them. And he had two previous convictions uh, and had done time. And then the third time he walked into our sting house in Riverside County, California, and they, they put him away, um, for a long, long time, I think forever, uh, or what amounted to forever. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the violent guys. And then you see the guys who are almost humorous in a way, like this week we profile a guy, uh, Owen Lee, who's a 38 year old who walked into our investigation in Flagler beach, Florida. This is for the podcast predators I've caught with Chris Hansen. And he was known in circles of people who follow all of the investigations as the polite predator. He walked in, he took his shoes off, he commented on the decor. We had an on-site decoy with whom he chatted. And but at the end of the day, that's all fine and good. But he was going to rape a child. Right? That was what he was there for. So I don't care whether he was polite or whether he was rude or whether he had done this in the past or not, or what he told the cops about his bad marriage. He was going to, to harm a child. And he ultimately pleaded guilty in that case. And then I come to find out in the research for this week's podcast, the one that just dropped today, he was investigated by police several years later for lurking about a middle school bus stop. I mean, hanging out, pretending that he was on a cell phone while he's watching kids. And he was a registered sex offender. So what did he learn from his experience on my investigation, my show? Apparently not enough. You know what's really sad? I just I didn't I sort of had a almost out of body experience thinking that's somebody's son. And what a what a disappointment that is. It's and, and what about to his wife or to to the the predator's children? I mean, we had a guy who showed up in California in Petaluma, Sonoma County, who was a doctor, an oncologist who was head of a company that was on the cutting edge of curing cancer, right? He's got two daughters, a wife who's also a doctor, and they largely forgave him. He had money, he fought this case forever and ever, and 
you know, there's no getting out of it. And he took a sentence and I think he had to give up his medical license. And, you know, for years, he just kind of, you know, stayed married and worked on his life. And ultimately he, he committed suicide, which is sad, but you know, what happens if he didn't get caught? What would he have done with a young girl? Um, and this guy was chatting with, with more than one decoy, right? So perverted justice in that case had multiple decoys. He was chatting with two of them. He happened to show up on a Saturday midday for one girl called dreamy dot was his screen name. And, um, you know, they bust him and he throws his keys and his glasses down and gets on the cell phone, calls his wife said, you know, meet me at the Sonoma County Sheriff's department with $30,000 bond money and don't bring the kids. Now I feel horrible for that wife and children for a lot of different reasons. And it's, it's what I consider to be the collateral damage here. You know, and it, it's it, it's devastating. They're victims. They're very much victims. They didn't do anything. And these what it, the point that it raises, I think, Andrew, is that it shows how these guys can compartmentalize what they're doing. They can go to the office. They can do, you know, research into cancer. They can have a wife. Maybe their you know relationship's not ideal, but they they stay in it. They have daughters, they go to the sports events, they go to the school events, and they get online and they're trying to hook up with a kid. It's really sad. And that's a sad, have you ever been scared of the decoys? Because these are usually sort of 18-year-olds and they're quite slight, of course, of figure because they're supposed to look quite young and everything. And that's quite scary because they have to, obviously you're ready to jump out, but they're still, you get these big burly blokes, you know, right by them are they scared and are you scared well it's it's you know i, I don't think scared is the word I mean, we're very cautious when we have an on-site decoy in fact you know in the new investigations it's somebody who's affiliated tangentially at least with law enforcement so you know they look young it's very much uh, believable but um in the past we've had you know volunteers well, actually we paid them they're not volunteers but um, you know, a theater student who looks much long, younger than he or she is. And that works very well. But, we, you know, just to give it that extra layer of security, we, we typically, you know, make sure that they've got some sort of law enforcement experience and that they've, you know, trained in this area. But it, it is. I mean, there's a lot going on at the same time. So not really being scared. It's just you're very aware. You're hyper aware because the guy's there. I'm as close to him sometimes as I am to this microphone. And there now we've got security and there's law enforcement close by and all of that but you know i'm watching their hands and they for some reason they always want to put their hands in their pockets out of nervousness or i don't know checking their phones or whatever and i don't know what's in the pocket so the first thing i tell them is i need you to get your hands out of your pockets which does a couple of things one they you know think well it must be law enforcement and they're you know they're trying to figure out who i am is it me is it the mad dad is it the cop you know, um, so there's a lot going on in their heads, but what you don't want, and we do as much background as we can to determine, you know, does this person have a license to carry a weapon? What do they do? But you, it's, it's not foolproof. And I think part of what makes this so compelling to television and digital audiences is that it's not predictable, right? And we, we try to make it as predictable 
and we try to take as many precautions as we can, but you really don't know what's going to happen. We are taking people inside the commission of a felony. And whether it's this franchise or you know, any of the dozen other things that I'm working on that are crime-related, investigative-related, the reason why they're so important and they're so compelling to viewers is because we take people into the commission of a crime. We take people into a space they wouldn't get to go. They hear things they wouldn't normally get to hear. They see things they wouldn't normally get to see. Um, and that's what makes it fascinating for the viewers. And I think that's part of why the crime genre in general and what we do specifically is so uh, interesting to people. They get to see it all and they don't have to go, you know, put on the, you know, custom Kevlar vest that I have to wear. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, I think that I honestly think there's nothing that's ever been on TV like that just because of the authenticity, because I think we're all craving, we're all craving authenticity. We're all watching, you know, and you don't, especially the reality shows, they're, they're all fake. It's all just nonsense. You know, you can see they're fake. You can see the producers are doing whatever they're doing. With your show, these guys are going to prison. These are real people who are, and you're seeing them. And this is the unfortunate side, of course. Part of us, it, there's a bit of schadenfreude, right? And maybe we don't want to admit that. We're seeing somebody at their lowest, lowest. Somebody who's gone in an instant from being a professor or a p police officer to being human scum in our eyes, you know? Oh, yeah. And they're, they're taken away. And um, yeah, it's it's and it, it takes it out of you doing the the stories because you you don't I mean we don't do a lot of high fiving and oh we got another one type thing that's not how it works it's like oh, it's more like oh my god you know the consequences of this for this human being are vast and you know heavy duty you know there's there's no celebratory nature to this it's it's you know, there's some satisfaction in getting somebody off the streets who would have harmed a child. But look, if nobody showed up ever again in a predator investigation, I'd be just fine with that, right? I've got a hundred things I've got to work on when I finish this conversation with you that aren't predator related, that will be popular, successful, important. Um, you know, I always thought that People always ask, well, what if nobody shows up? I said, well, we'll have done our job. We'll have succeeded. But sadly, I can predict without fear of contradiction that that's not going to happen by the nature of the internet, the nature of the crime, and human nature. I just don't see it stopping. Speaking of internet and crime and predators, tell, uh, tell us about Onision. Onision is a guy who was early on in the YouTube craze, very popular. He did a bit called I'm a Banana, and it made it onto a television show called Tosh.0. And he became a real hit, a sensation on YouTube, and he had millions and millions of followers. And then at some point, he transitioned into a guy who would do videos and talk about teen angst, targeting young girls, and he would chronicle his own controversial, colorful life. And at some point he crossed the line and was having some of these girls come live with him and his spouse. There were allegations of sexual impropriety, grooming, predator behavior, some accusa accusations of sexual assault, some accusations of uh, transmission of what could be construed as child porn, targeting both him and his spouse. 
Um, there were numerous calls to his home, to police complaining about activity. In one case, his two-year-old child fell from a second-story window with both parents home, almost died. At that time, he was on the phone with um, or texting inappropriately with a fan. And all these fans came forward to talk about this case. And we started reporting it on our YouTube channel, Have a Seat with Chris Hansen. And we interviewed a lot of the victims. And um, there have been law enforcement investigations. Uh, YouTube has investigated. We did a documentary for Discovery Plus, which lays all this out. He has been vehement in his denial of committing any crimes, absurdly suggesting that in some cases, the alleged victims were the perpetrators, you know, sexually assaulted him and his spouse. I mean, crazy stuff. And if you watch him come unglued in some of these videos, he will claim it's just theater, but it's, it's abuse. It's predatory behavior. It's case after case of knowing exactly who to target. So that victim would be the most vulnerable and, and unlikely to either be believed or to even report what happened in the first place. So all of this comes to a head as we do this documentary for Discovery Plus, which if people haven't seen it, they should. And two different law enforcement agencies investigate, one the FBI, two a sheriff's department in Washington state where he lives. It's in the midst of the pandemic. A lot of people got away with a lot of crimes during the pandemic because law enforcement, prosecutors' offices, district attorneys were only focusing on the loudest noise out there, homicides, protests. And so he has thus far escaped criminal prosecution. But finally, after laying all this out there, YouTube responded and demonetized him, took away his platform in terms of making all this money. And, and, and I just tell people, look, uh, watch the documentary. You know, you can judge for yourself what this guy's been up to. But he's taken, he doesn't have the guts to do an interview with me. I read that he wanted um, nearly half a million dollars to do an interview with you. Well, he, it's, he's been all over the board. He's not a sane human, right? So initially, when I asked him to do an interview, he wanted $350,000. And then he threatened to sue. He threatened to do all kinds of stuff. And he can't because there's no, nothing to sue about. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the target of some sort of civil suits by victims at some point. Uh, he, he sued the wrong Chris Hansen, I think. What happened was we decided that since he didn't want to do an interview, we'd go in person to give him the opportunity to do an interview. So I went out with a crew, knocked on his door. He wouldn't answer. And he called the local law enforcement. So they show up. I explain. I'm Chris Hanson. I came here to interview this fellow. Um, nobody answered the door. We left the property. We're not going back on the property. We're not going to harass him. But that's what we're up to. And uh, they went and interviewed him. And we didn't you know, commit trespassing. We knocked on his door. And it was from that that we found out about the incident where his child almost died. I mean, how does a two-year-old fall out of a second-story window with both parents home? How does that happen? He looks, I mean, ex excuse my French, he looks fucking mad. I mean, I, I just had a look now at his YouTube page. He is mad. He's, 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 he's a wag job. But, you know, wag jobs can, can uh, commit crimes and cause harm to people.
and and that's what he's done. Now he's been lying low. You know, he, he occasionally will pop up and generate some sort of misinformation campaign about me or make some allegations or say something, you know, totally stupid. But, um, you know, he's in this limo now, but at least YouTube recognized that what he was doing, we literally in this documentary transposed the, you know, terms of service cartoon they put out, right? Good touch, bad touch type stuff. And, and intercut what he has done. And it's so over the top violated anything, any policy YouTube had that they had no choice but to demonetize it. So at least people are aware, you know, uh, thus far, right, there have been no criminal charges, but, you know, he's not out of the woods there yet. And he's certainly not out of the woods civilly. These people, he, he was sort of grooming and bullying and sort of doing pranks on that and not really pranks. Were they underage girls? Uh, some were. In one case, he actually got a girl's mother to sign away guardianship to him. What? What mother did that? The mother of one of the girls. How old was she? She was 16 at the time. And, and yeah, signed away. So there's a lot of responsibility here. And, and look, I'm not out to shame parents or anything. Whoever committed the crime committed the crime. But, you know, he was very careful about not having young women visit his residence until they barely reached, you know, the threshold of being legal. In, in that state, in Washington state. So um, was every contact illegal? Not necessarily. Was it wrong? Well, there's a whole lot of wrong here. That, that's where it gets complicated, isn't it? Well, it does. And that's, that's where, you know, and again, if, if you've got any case that's all gray area or where you have vulnerable victims who don't complete the reporting process or don't push law enforcement to act on their case, you know, it becomes a gray area. And during the last two years, the vast majority of gray area cases uh, that should have been a question of fact for a judge or jury didn't go that far because of the pandemic. That's just the plain truth. You and I are now, um, in a sense, YouTubers. I don't think I don't imagine either of us thought we might be uh, ever, you know, with other projects. And you've been involved with the YouTube community now. And I've been wondering, I put in my last newsletter, that I think that it's easy for psychopathic people perhaps to rise. Uh, and you look at his page in particular, it's just horrible. It's not funny. Do you think there, have you encountered a lot of that sort of cultish and, and not very nice people? How's your experience been on YouTube? Well, it's, you know, I think generally people have responded well. Um, again, you know, I like to say that I'm not a YouTuber. I'm just a journalist who has a YouTube channel. And I think it's up to 380,000 subscribers now. And we've got 25 or 26 million views. Pretty good, it's good going for somebody who doesn't call themselves a YouTuber. It's not bad. Right. But, you know, we've come across some compelling stories. You know, the Onision story, we covered a lot of the pandemic, you know, every week during that. You know, we can spin it up immediately to do a lot of different things. Um, as I said, we're going to have a predator, uh, preview on it coming up this week. And we've got some other things in the works, but in the, the, you know, the other case that we did a lot of work on was the Davi vanity case is this, you know, heavy metal electronic rocker who's accused of, um, sexually assaulting dozens and dozens of underage fans and just a bad guy in general. But, um, and th those cases have resonated with people, but they've also created this odd dynamic 
where more traditional YouTubers uh, are offended that, you know, a fellow of a certain age comes in from the outside and has some modest success with it. And, you know, the, the drama community on YouTube had figured out a long time ago that it doesn't matter whether it's true or false. If they can target somebody with a large audience and gin up a misinformation campaign or say something false, it doesn't matter true or not, they can create drama and drama creates views and views creates money. And I don't do YouTube to make money. I mean, yes, the, the channel generates some revenue, but the vast majority of my content because of the nature of it isn't monetized. So, you know, that's again, not why I did it. I did it to have a place there because I think it's, it, it's important. And I also think it's a place where you can experiment with different stories and see if they turn into television documentaries. And that's what happened with Onision. And, you know, it, 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 it's important. It's a venue. It, it's allowed a lot of citizen journalists to exist. And I think there's a very important place in, in our society, in the fifth estate, to, to have citizen journalists and citizen journalists have brought a lot of information to guys like me who, you know, are more mainstream journalists. And we've been able to take it to the next level. They've also done a great job on their own in some cases, exposing wrong or educating. And, and YouTube's a wonderful thing when used properly. You know, you can bake a cake, you can fix a car, you can write wrongs, you can expose horrible things. And you can be funny. It's creative. It's a great spot. It's the great democratization of of, of entertainment in some ways, but it also is the wild, wild west, which is rife with abuse. If somebody wants to try to abuse it, you know, and we've seen it time and time again. And I guess that's just the open nature of it. You know, it's like the internet, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous. And so it's, it's a wild animal to try to, you know, keep in check or monitor. But the idea sort of is to have something that's unmonitored, unfiltered, that goes direct to viewers. And I think there's a, there's a vast appeal there. And, and I've seen it because I had, you know, as I mentioned, some modest success with it. Chris Hansen, you've been on the edge. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.